0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name's Christian Byrne, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Melissa Mercer. Um, She's a diplomat of large animal internal medicine and uh, currently a resident in veterinary clinical pharmacology at Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you very much for joining me today, Melissa.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: And so I think you're the perfect person to have on to um, talk through this subject today. And um, it's uh, sort of using a springboard um, from a clinical commentary article that you wrote, uh, cannabinoids in veterinary medicine. Is there evidence to support the trend? And that's currently on EVE early view. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk that through with us.
1: It's my pleasure. It's definitely a hot topic in the veterinary sphere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess, just as a, a sort of by way of introduction, the um, article that you wrote was uh, a clinical commentary to go along with a case report that was also in EVE um, uh, from um, uh, a group from Colorado State. Um, that was discussing a mare that had allodynia around the withers. Um, the mare didn't have any overt causes of pain on investigation and, and responded poorly to other treatments like gabapentin, uh, prednisolone, um magnesium, vitamin E. Um, And the signs then rapidly resolved after starting treatment with um, a cannabinoid. So um, I guess just useful as a background um, from your experience, do you think that's a a typical sort of case where we're starting to see the use of, of this type of product in veterinary medicine?
1: Certainly, I think that's one of the major areas that people are starting to explore the use of CBD and other endocannabinoids. As of the moment, I don't really think there's a typical application of CBD. It's such a new compound that there's a myriad of different conditions that folks are trying it on. Anything from neuropathic pain and allodynia to behavioral management to even seizure control.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And I guess one thing that's also useful to um, think about, and we were just chatting a little bit before we started recording, actually, that um, in that article, um, it was actually partly client-driven that that made the the transition to sort of CBD products, Um, and I guess um, wondered what your thoughts were on sort of the public perception of CBD um, in sort of veterinary medicine and more generally, maybe.
1: The public in general is very accepting and even enthusiastic about the use of CBD, as demonstrated by that article, not only for themselves, but also for their pets. Uh, Given the widespread marketing of both human and pet products, CBD is readily available. And typically anything an owner can personally take, they feel they'll have success then using with a pet. In some of the consumer insight surveys that I found, um, in 2019, 58% of survey respondents said that they're somewhat very or extremely familiar with CBD, with only 14% saying they've never heard of it. And despite fairly high awareness, only 24% of respondents said they've actually used a CBD product, while 70% had said they had not at that point. I think we're seeing that number generally climbing, particularly here in 2021, with the advent of all the social media advertising around its use for anxiety and any other health condition. Overall, the majority of people said that they had associated with at least one health benefit, and that mentioned pain relief, anti-anxiety, sleep aids, epilepsy.
0: Yeah, goodness! It sounds like it can certainly contribute a lot to uh, to quite a lot of situations, um, and another thing I, I think, um, obviously, in terms of legislation. Um, uh, for use in humans and for uh, uh, veterinary species is obviously going to be different between different countries. So I think that's just um, probably something important for us to highlight as well as we as we go along in the discussion is that maybe even the public acceptance and things will will differ depending on the, the legislation for this type of product in, in particular regions, I guess.
1: Definitely. Um, Well, here in the U.S., marijuana is still illegal under federal law. Thirty three states in the District of Columbia have passed laws legalizing it in some form. And in 2018, the federal Farm Bill actually descheduled industrial hemp, which coupled with the destigmatization of cannabis use has really led to a very aware and often enthusiastic public response. This is also true in Canada, where they legalized medical marijuana in 2001. So when we compare that North America response to other countries like the UK, which has had a little bit more stricter response to marijuana and cannabis since the 20s, they're still seen often as illicit drugs. However, CBD products are currently legal in the UK, and the expansion of CBD products into the high street indicates that there's certainly a greater awareness and use in the UK that will continue to grow. Do you have any experience with your clients on their attitudes towards CBD?
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, we've had uh, uh, maybe I think it's an, an increasing trend that maybe people are asking our opinions about them or, um, you know, even, uh, you know, I think a lot of clients probably researching into it. And, and even, you know, as you've said, it's uh, um, certainly possible for people to, to source a form of CBD product and um, certainly in the UK and uh, fairly you know, in a, in a fairly straightforward manner for their for their horses as well. So, I think definitely seems to be something that's that's an increasing trend. I would say.
1: I would agree. We definitely are seeing it being used in tax shops and other places too.
0: <laughs> yes, I think that's that's uh, that's probably a, a sign of the times. I think, isn't it that that's happening? Um, I think uh, at this point, it's probably useful for us to. Um, get a bit more background about um, how this type of product relates to uh, some of my maybe more uh, typical understanding of the pain sensation pathway and how um, uh, cannabinoids fit into that. So if you could give us any more information about that, that'd be really helpful.
1: Definitely. There's a wide variety of different types of pain states from nociceptive and inflammatory pain to neuropathic pain, which is often what we think endocannabinoids might have a use, and dysfunctional type pain states as well. And when we think of the pain conduction pathways, there are several different sites where we can pharmacologically modulate that pain response. First, we can attempt to stop or reduce the transduction of pain signals by peripheral nociceptors at the actual site of injury. And typically, we think of this site as being affected by local anesthetics or NSAIDs or anticonvulsant therapy. Next, we can then look to alter the transmission of pain signals from the peripheral nerves to the dorsal root ganglion in the spinal cord. And drugs we think of that might work here are local anesthetics like epidurals, opioids, and alpha-2 agonists. Then we can think about altering the perception of pain itself within the central nervous system, which is where we get our centrally acting agents, including things like alpha-2 agonists, tricyclic antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and even acetaminophen or paracetamol. Finally, we can change the modulation of the actual pain response. And that's typically through our tricyclic antidepressants, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, etc. In equine practice, we have a lot of different agents that work in the transduction and transmission pathways. We have a couple that work in the perception pathway, but we really lack any good modulators. So we're constantly looking to expand our repertoire of available agents that we can then create multimodal different types of treatment strategies to simultaneously interact with a variety of different elements of pain perception and conduction cascades. And this is where endocannabinoids might have a player.
0: That's fantastic. So I think um, uh, that's given us a little bit of a a hint at where those receptors um, that are um, receptive to endocannabinoids might might be located um what are the um the endocannabinoids that we uh need to know about really in in veterinary species
1: when we think of the endocannabinoid system we think of it encompassing this complex kind of intracellular signaling enzymes for both ligand biosynthesis and inactivation and it plays a physiologic role in several different systems and that includes like the neurologic inflammatory and immune systems The endocannabinoid system itself actually is composed of endocannabinoids, which the two principal ones we think about are AEA and 2AG. And then there's also 2G protein coupled receptors known as cannabinoid type 1 and cannabinoid type 2.
0: That's great. And and do we know where these um, originate from um, in the body?
1: We have some idea, though there's a lot of differences in species distribution. We don't have a full picture of what they look like in the horse, um, but in other species we know that CB1 is expressed centrally within the neocortex, the cerebellum, and the limbic systems. And activation of receptors at that site can lead to initiation of descending inhibition to our spinal cord nociceptive mechanisms, and it also modulates a lot of the emotional aspects of pain in humans. In the CNS itself, CB1 is also involved with cognitive function, emotions, motion, and movement, and neuroprotection, and it's also expressed peripherally on nerve cells, predominantly on presynaptic axonal terminals. CB2, however, is found mostly on peripheral nerve cells and immune system cells like mast cells, B cells, and macrophages, and typically it has limited neuronal expression. Activation of CB2 receptors leads to inhibition of the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines in immune cells and is involved in reducing inflammation and involved in chronic pain relief.
0: And I guess um, one thing for us to think about at this point, obviously, we've sort of discussing uh, endocannabinoids at this stage, do we know anything about how those might differ with um, in comparison to exogenous cannabinoids, which is obviously the, um, uh, the impact that we're going to have by potentially administering this type of medication?
1: That's a real big challenge, and I think that's where a lot of research is trying to figure out the differences between our endogenous and exogenous cannabinoids. We know that administration of exogenous cannabinoids has been demonstrated to have antinociception effects in tissue injury models of acute and persistent inflammatory pain and neuropathic pain. However, the studies are limited as the administration of exogenous endocannabinoids doesn't necessarily reflect the true biologic activity of endogenous endocannabinoids, because those endogenous endocannabinoids are synthesized incredibly rapidly because it has a very plastic kind of response in the nervous system, but they're also degraded just as rapidly. So the half-life of our endogenous compounds is not necessarily comparable to what we're seeing in the exogenous ones.
0: Okay, that's interesting for us to take forward, I guess. Um, um, I think a useful bit of background for us to to consider as well would be um, I, this sort of obviously the derivation of um, these types of products from cannabis um, plants. Um, are we talking about just one type of plant when we discuss that or are there different species of, um, of cannabis plant that we uh, might see in use for the production of cannabinoids?
1: All the cannabinoids, all the cannabis, excuse me, that's currently available in the market is actually derived from cannabis sativa, although there are a number of different subspecies and varieties of the actual plant. At the moment, there's two major hemp kind of cultures. Uh, Industrial hemp, which is also known on the street as cannabis light, uh, which has a THC level of less than 0.3%. And that's typically where we're seeing a lot of our CBD products being manufactured out of. Main medical cannabis, cannabis or marijuana has a much higher THC level, anything greater than 0.3%. There's also some synthetic cannabinoids that are lab manufactured that are starting to emerge on the market too.
0: That's great. And one um, compound you just mentioned there is the THC. So uh, I think it would be useful for us to... to think about exactly um, what are the sort of major compounds that we're, we're thinking about in this type of product, um, and if there's any difference in the effects that these uh, the different compounds might have on the body.
1: Definitely. I think most of us are very familiar with THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, which is the main psychoactive uh, ingredient in our cannabis species. Uh, but there's also a variety of different phytocannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids contained in the female plants of cannabis sativa, And also CBD or cannabidiol is one of the major um, endocannabinoids of interest. They do have some similar effects, uh, CBD and THC, but they do have some different effects. THC is actually a partial CB1 and CB2 receptor antagonist and is a phytomimetic, or essentially a plant analog of AEA, one of our endogenous endocannabinoids. While we typically think of THC for its psychoactive effects, some preclinical research has also shown that it could be effective against nausea and vomiting, neuropathic pain, and controlling intraocular pressure and glaucoma. Unlike THC, CBD doesn't have any inherent intoxicating effects, but one of the common myths is that this molecule isn't actually psychoactive. The CBD molecule is able to achieve changes in brain function and results in clinically detectable alterations in perception and mood and consciousness, and that's why it's frequently prescribed, um, quote unquote, for anxiolytic or antidepressant effects. It's also different in that CBD is considered a partial agonist at CB2 and an antagonist at CB1. There isn't a consensus on the exact mechanism of action of CBD, but we do know that it possesses a number of different modulatory effects on the endocannabinoid system. And one of its big ones is that it limits the degradation of AEA. So while it doesn't necessarily have a huge effect on the endocannabinoid system itself, it keeps our endogenous endocannabinoids like AEA around longer inhibiting their breakdown
0: mechanisms that's really interesting background and um, about about the differences between those two and um, certainly i think another difference that we should touch on is uh, obviously the legalities about um some of the differences between those and as you as you said sort of thc is maybe the product or the compound we're most familiar with and um, and is probably more tightly regulated but what do we know about the, the sort of regulation or um, accuracy of concentrations of CBD in marketed products, which is obviously one of the key things that we'll need to think about if we're going to start using these products in veterinary species?
1: Definitely. And I think it's a hugely problematic um, part of why we're struggling with CBD at the moment is that there isn't any federal regulation, either in the US, the UK, Canada, anywhere I've looked on the actual manufacturing standards of CBD products. And we have two different journal articles, one by Pavlovic et al. that was published in Molecules and one by Shacoin et al. in the Canadian Veterinary Journal that both looked at the composition of CBD preparations, either in Europe from the Molecules article or in Canada from the Canadian Veterinary Journal article. Both of these articles looked at 13 plus different liquid formulations and treats for, T- for CBD, and they found that there was a wide variety of results. In the European study, over two-thirds of the products had CBD concentrations that differed by more than 10% from the product labeling, with one product even containing a concentration of C- THC that would exclude it from being classified as industrial hemp. In the Canadian formulation, they found uh, one product that contained 180% of its labeled claim while others barely had any CBD potency. Uh, And one product had negligible CBD but had levels of THC that were four times the legal oral serving size for humans and 4,000 times the legal limit for a natural hemp product. Some of the compounds also contained a variety of pesticides and one compound contained 160 times the maximal permissible level of arsenic and water. So since there's a lack of regulation and oversight, there's potentially a lot of harm that could come from these products due to lack of due diligence. If an owner is obsessed with using CBD, um, I would recommend them at least use a product that has a certificate of analysis, which is a laboratory evaluation of cannabis products that provides an objective measurement of its contents. Ideally, it should come from a third-party laboratory that meets International Organization for Standardization or International Electrotechnical Commission standards that displays the level of each cannabinoid and terpene as well as any contaminants or potential pathogens present.
0: Yeah, I think those are some really important points. I think uh, it certainly sounds like we you could be in for somewhat of a lottery really with the, the selection of products at the moment. So um, I think uh, that sounds very useful advice to and um, to try and clarify that and not necessarily trust what's um what's been put on the label and um, another point i guess to just to highlight um and you you mentioned this in the article obviously is the uh, regulations in competing horses and obviously uh, in the majority of cases uh, horses that are going to be actively in competition and um, shouldn't have this type of product in their system and um, uh, is is i guess the take-home message you give there
1: Definitely. Um, the USAP, uh, FEI, the American Quarter Horse Association, many different breed associations all list natural cannabinoids, synthetic cannabinoids, and any other cannabino as a prohibited substance. Additionally, the Association for Racing Commissioners International currently classifies CBD as a lower class three category B penalty, um, and they designate a CBD product with more than 0.3% THC as a class one category A substance. So caution is really important when any of these products are used in competition horses since, as we were just talking about, the composition widely varies, and it may not be representative of their label claims, and there's no regulatory oversight from any governmental agency or guarantee of safety in a horse. In particular, most show organizations are using highly sensitive LCMS technology that can detect down to parts per billion levels in blood and urine. So if it's being used, it will most likely be found
0: great i think an important an important point to highlight at this uh, at this stage um, and i guess maybe uh, just gives us some direction about which which cases this type of product might be most applicable for um it might be useful for us to change tack a little bit at this point and just try and get a bit more background about uh, the sort of scientific background for the use of the product um um, and some of that comes from basic science and, and human studies, as well as in veterinary species. What do we know about the distribution of um, uh, cannabidiol after it's been um, administered?
1: Well, due to their lipophilic nature, THC, CBD, and any of the other cannabinoids undergo really rapid tissue distribution and cross the blood-brain barrier. That leads to those psychoactive effects that we often see, but it also leads to a prolonged biological half-life. Uh, due to the wide distribution in the CNS and effects on neuronal transmission, endocannabinoids have mainly been studied for CNS disorders and neuropathic pain in humans, but the pharmodynamics have really been difficult to elucidate.
0: And in the article, you highlight a few um, clinical studies from human patients, and that seems to be um, uh, cover quite a wide range of conditions. Can you give us a, a bit of background about What conditions um, these have typically been uh, applied to and and what we can take from that?
1: Sure. Um, In humans, a transdermal CBD type gel has been used in patients with peripheral neuropathic pain, and it was shown to be quite positive in mitigating pain as well as some of the cold and itchy sensations that these patients feel. Um, And however, in a study that looked at three different CBD drugs and THC-containing drugs, none of the treatments had an effect greater than placebo on spontaneous or electrical-type pain response. Um, One of the best studied CBD-containing registered products is Sativex, um, which contains both CBD and THC um, and is available as an oral mucosal spray in Canada. Uh, clinical studies have demonstrated its efficacy in pain attenuation with several diseases, including neuropathic pain, multiple sclerosis, cancer, and rheumatoid arthritis.
0: Fantastic. And in terms of the um, sort of acceptance of these studies as evidence in in the human field, is there, are there any limitations to these studies that we need to know about, I guess, in, before we draw too much of a conclusion from them?
1: So in humans, the Neuropathic Pain Special Interest Group of the International Association for the Study of Pain has published guidelines for the treatment of neuropathic pain in 2015, and they didn't actually include the use of cannabinoids in their recommendations. They've done a meta-analysis that identified five, nine different trials of nambixamols, or extracts of cannabis, uh, in neuropathic pain, of which only two of them demonstrated significant findings, with one in multiple sclerosis that demonstrated a positive outcome, and a second larger study that demonstrated a negative outcome. Therefore, they concluded that they just had weak recommendations against the use of cannabinoids due to negative results and the potential for misuse and potential diversion of THC-different containing products.
0: That's great. And um, in relation to sort of basic science um, and laboratory testing, does that give us any more of an idea about exactly um, what the analgesic effect might be um, of cannabinoids?
1: definitely we have a lot of the basis for the potential use for cannabinoids coming out of our basic science models uh, cbd is found to exert an analgesic effect in several different laboratory animal neuropathic pain models um, in a sciatic injury mouse model cbd containing gelatin administered orally significantly reduced allodynia for up to three weeks post-surgery but it did reveal no significant effect of cbd and hyperalgesia reduction though there was a trend toward analgesia In several different inflammatory induced chronic pain models, cannabinoids, including CBD, MAGs, are an analgesic and anti inflammatory effect. Um, In a study with Complete Freud's adjuvant induced inflammatory pain in rodents, they revealed an important role for CBD and its modified derivatives in chronic pain attenuation.
0: And an interesting point, I think, to to pick up on that you highlight in the article is, um, I guess, differentiating an analgesic effect and a a psychoactive effect between these products. Do we know? Uh, how important this sort of contribution of psychoactive effects might be for this type of product?
1: I think given the the mechanism of action for CBD's purported analgesic effects remains incompletely understood, we should anticipate that the anxiolytic effect of CBD in human patients has a significant influence on these basic science studies uh, coming out of human medicine, particularly anything with the pharmacodynamics in patients with chronic pain management.
0: That's really useful. Um, I think another Point obviously for us to think about now is whether we have any information directly related to equine patients. Um, do we have any studies at all investigating equine patients?
1: As of right now, we do not have any studies published in a peer-reviewed journal um, for CBD and horses. But I have gone on a bit of a hunt to see if we have any data available for us for examination. And there is some data that's been published since I wrote the review article in 2019. Uh, Heather Davis, in her doctoral thesis from Auburn in 2019, looked at CBD pharmacokinetics in a group of 10 healthy horses, and they administered CBD at 0.1 mg per kg. They found that there was a high variability in oral absorption and a prolonged half-life, but Davis concluded that the dose was too low to determine any pharmacodynamic effects. We do have some useful pharmacokinetic data from that study um, at the 0.1 mg per kg dose for a CBD oil. And that includes a maximum concentration of 27.2 nanogram per mil and a time to that maximum concentration of about 2.9 hours. Additionally, there was also a small pilot PK study that was just published a couple of weeks ago in January 2021 um, by Drager et al. out of Murray State University in a sponsored publication that looked at the pharmacokinetics of CBD in 18 riding horses. This group administered a single dose of CBD as a pelleted formulation at around 0.1 mg per kg, 0.2 mg per kg, and a 0.5 mg per kg dose that they actually extrapolated from this ellison Contino case study out of EVE. They found a maximum concentration time of only two hours and only five horses in the 0.5 mg per kg group and one horse in the 0.2 mg per group. Kig group actually achieves serum concentrations above the limit of quantification of one nanogram per mil on their analysis. These two studies really suggest that there's a significant potential for formulation to be playing a major role in the CBD PK in horses, and it should be noted that the plasma levels achieved in both of these studies, 27 at a maximum, is significantly lower than any of the dog efficacy studies that we've looked at. I am, however, aware that there's a number of studies currently underway, including one that's looking at its effects on stereotypic behaviors in horses, and a study looking at its elimination and detection times. So I'm really looking forward to see an expansion of our knowledge base in CBD horses over the next couple of years.
0: That's great to um, highlight what we what we can expect on the horizon. I think is uh, is useful for people to to have in mind. I think that's uh, that's very helpful. And um, one. Thing you mentioned there obviously is that there's there's um, uh, been some other studies in other species like dogs. Um, do we uh, think that other species are maybe a good model for us to predict what might happen in the horse, or um, do we think it really needs to be equine patient only data that we that we're really looking at?
1: I think it's challenging to stay, say, at this exact moment in time, um, since we don't know the distribution of endocannabinoid receptors throughout the horse and how it compares in a species comparison to other species like dogs. But I feel like a lot of the literature is using these case studies and peer-reviewed studies in dogs to act as a proof of concept for cannabinoid use in other veterinary species.
0: That's really useful. Um, And uh, obviously, you've kind of highlighted some of the studies that we can expect to be coming in the future and um, I guess it'd be interesting to get your thoughts about clinical applications and maybe we're jumping a step at that doing that at this point but um I guess what the potential applications might be in in equine patients for um CBD and uh, and how that might fit with other um uh, analgesic agents that we already have available
1: it's very hard um, to determine exactly what we're going to be able to use CBD for at this point, since we just don't have the knowledge base on dose, what product to use, what its effects, and what its safety is. But I think we'll be seeing CBD deployed as part of a multimodal analgesic strategy for conditions like ant- laminitis or for allodynia and non-specific but presumed neuropathic pain. I think it'll be deployed a lot of ways the same way that we look at gabapentin right now.
0: Yeah, and I think that was just a, another point to touch on and um, obviously we sort of focused on the um CBD as a product in this um in this discussion but um I think useful just to highlight uh, as you said any other agents that you um you think are, are, are relevant to th- this kind of condition so obviously gabapentin's one of those um, do you have any other thoughts about analgesic agents that we're maybe underusing for for this type of application or similar similar scenarios?
1: It's really hard um, to have really good field management strategies for this type of unrelenting neuropathic pain or chronic pain states. We have a lot of our traditional options like NSAIDs or even our COX-2 selectives, but they have the potential for adverse reactions with long-term and chronic dosing schemes. When we're looking at non-traditional options, we're seeing increasing regulations around the opioids that really rule them out for field use for long-term management, either due to cost or due to the small amounts that we can legally dispense at a time, leading to inconvenience of access. Some of the other non-traditional options that have been examined are things like ketamine, but again, that's really inappropriate for field management. Acetaminophen has been showing some promise in some of the laboratory models of neuropathic pain and has been shown to actually interact with the endocannabinoid system as part of its mechanism of action. In mouse models, acetaminophen has been shown to facilitate endogenous endocannabinoid signaling through one of its metabolites, and their data indicates that enhanced cannabinoid signaling is part of its analgesic effect. However, it hasn't been examined for that purpose in our veterinary species yet. Um, Myself and our group, we've published a pharmacokinetic and safety study in horses on acetaminophen. And we're in the process of doing some work looking at induced lameness and chronic naturally occurring lameness models for that drug. Amitriptyline has also been used for neuropathic pain management in humans, and its pharmacokinetics have been evaluated in horses. But there are no efficacy studies yet that have been performed for neuropathic pain management, and it should be noted that amitriptyline is prohibited in multiple showing and raising organizations. Other alternative therapies like acupuncture and cryotherapy are excellent adjuncts to some of our more traditional approaches, and I have seen some positive reactions to acupuncture, particularly for neuropathic pain management
0: that's really useful um uh sort of run through of other options i think as as we've said sometimes these can be uh cases that can be very difficult to manage and i think just uh, having an awareness of um other options that are available i, I think are why this type of product like the cbd have, have, is obviously sort of skyrocketing in popularity and with uh, practitioners probably and and with clients and um, obviously you've uh, mentioned a few of the studies that we uh, probably can anticipate to see um, uh, published shortly and um, that might give us uh, some more information about the use of this product is there any other particular um, aspects of the, um, uh, the product that you would like to see more investigation related to?
1: I think we definitely need to look into the safety of long-term CBD dosing, because most of our patients with chronic and neuropathic pain, where we're going to be potentially deploying this therapy, are really ones that are going to be on daily long-term administration. When you look at some of the dog literature um, provided following long-term chronic dosing of CBD of up to four weeks, they have seen a statistically significant increase in alkaline phosphatase enzymes, but none of the other liver enzymes. And this is most likely due to induction of cytochrome P450 in the liver after ingestion, since CBD is known to be a cytochrome P450 inhibitor. But in addition to these increases in ALP in dogs, they've also seen idiosyncratic cutaneous adverse drug reactions, um, resulting in pad sloughing and rapid progressive cutaneous and mucosal ulceration. And if people contact dermatitis from oils, urticaria, puritus, anaphylaxis, rashes, and edema have all been associated with cannabis and CBD oils. So it's really important if an owner's deploying this therapy in a horse to keep the potential for adverse reactions in mind for patients administered CBD and also to look out for drug interactions, since it is a cytochrome P450 inhibitor.
0: That's really useful. I think uh, thing to take away and uh, uh, an important point for us to to highlight. And um, I think that's a really good place for us to um, sort of round off the discussion. I think we've covered uh, quite a lot of material there, um, which has been really helpful. And I think um, certainly uh, indicates that there's probably a lot more information that's going to be that's going to be coming through in the future, uh, that we'll be able to help us use the the product uh, maybe more safely as you as you suggest and also um, and hopefully in a more efficacious manner as well and um, so thanks very much for your time to discuss that today melissa that was fantastic
1: oh thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure to talk with you
0: thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast more on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve